Let me ask you to bow with me to pray as we now come to the scripture. Uh, Father in heaven, as we come now to open the word of God, uh, we realize our desperate need. Um, Life and death is before us. It's real. Uh, We need your help to know how it is that we're to live in these days facing life and death. And so help us. I pray that this word would not simply be that which is simply words on the page, but as you say that your word is, it's life. It makes us wise. It satisfies our longings. It is alive and living and penetrates deep within us places that nothing else can go to reveal that which is in us and speak to us that which is true. So, Father, we pray now that you would enable us to listen, to hear, to understand, to believe. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, please. Though I'm only going to really give an overview today, kind of to set our minds on what's to come, uh, so that uh, I won't be concentrating as detailed as usual, uh, and we'll probably only look at a couple of verses. I want to read verses 1 through 20 just to kind of set the tone for us. Colossians in chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Well, I suppose the first question would be, why Colossians? Why am I taking this up? And the answer, of course, is because it's in the Bible. Um, it always surprises me. Uh, I've heard that churches don't always center their lives, their services, their thinking around biblical text. I just don't have a category in my brain for that, uh, nor should they, by the way. But um, So it, it, it is in the Bible. It's important. But, but there's lots of things in the Bible, obviously. So why this particular book? Well, on the one hand, we're finished with uh, Habakkuk, though I don't think it's finished with us. Uh, we're finished with our, our, our dealings there in a formal way, at least. I trust, if you're like me, there's still Habakkuk days and Habakkuk lingerings and thoughts just from that prophetic prophetic word. But as, as I've been thinking about what to do next, uh, you know, we've, I've been here a long time. And uh, it's hard not to repeat stuff now. Uh, but we haven't done Colossians together. And so that, that's sort of what made it on my short list of, of biblical books to read uh, in preparation and to think about. But what grabbed me really was the context and hence the content of Colossians, this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Colossae. And by context and content, I mean first every book of the Bible, most especially the letters of Paul, have a context. In other words, a real person, Paul, writing to real people, these, these saints and, 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 and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae. So it has, a, has a, a real person writing to real people who live in a real place at a real time. And something has sparked Paul... Um, the Holy Spirit most especially, but through the means of what he knows about Colossae, what's going on there, something has sparked him to write to them. And so, so that particular context brings a content that I think is important for us to hear. And not more important necessarily than anything else in the Bible, but, but it, it in itself will give us uh, a great deal to think about and to dwell upon uh, as we read through it. Because... We come to chapter 2 in Colossians, we'll find that there's some difficulties here. We, we always find that in, in these New Testament letters. There's, there's something going on there that sparks the, the author's interest, that sparks Paul's interest in this case. And he's saying, I want to speak to you about this. And, 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 and I won't go into detail here because, A, it isn't an easy thing for us to discern what's really going on in Colossae. It's referred to in the literature as the Colossian heresy, but it's, it's still difficult to get a handle on exactly what was going on there. But, what, but you get the sense that what was going on in Colossae was that people were, were, were missing uh, the right focus. That they were, they were beginning as believers in Christ still, but, but believing to sort of lose their way. Rather than concentrate their attention upon Jesus, to concentrate their attention upon the gospel, other kinds of things were coming into their thought life, into their minds, to, to distract them from this primary focus of attention. And it seems to me, one of the difficulties of life all the time is to be distracted. Uh, it seems that distractions come in and we forget our way. We forget what we're to focus upon really. We're, we, we, we cease keeping the main thing the main thing. And what Paul does in Colossians is bring us back to the main thing. Because his antidote 
to what's happening in Colossae is to speak to them, and this is going to be a real surprise to you, to speak to them about Jesus. He says, you're you're losing your way, you're you're losing your focus. There are other things that that are coming in to distract you. You think you should follow these other ways, these other ideas, these other teachings. There's things that are coming in to, to, to take your attention. And so what I want to do is bring you back. What I want you to do is concentrate your attention upon the one who is, in fact, preeminent. Verse 18, second part, that in everything... He, and the he there is Jesus, that he might be preeminent. That is first, last, and always supreme. That he's the one. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever change the focus of your attention away from him. Of course, that isn't surprising because Jesus is what Christianity is all about. We've said many times, uh, if you take Christ... Out of Christianity, you really have nothing. Because it really is all about who he is uniquely. It isn't simply about what he said, though it's about that, but it's about what he did. And he's the only one who can do what he claims to have done, which is to represent God perfectly, to represent us perfectly, to, 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 to die for our sins and have his life count for ours, to be able to pay this penalty, to be able to rule and reign over all things. Only he can do that. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and replace him with another prophet who says the same things, and you still have Islam. You can take Confucian out of Confucianism and supply someone who says the same things and still have Confucianism. Take Buddha out of Buddhism, whatever. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you haven't got anything at all because it really is about who he is, his person, and his authority because of who he is. He is the very one. Who is preeminent. As we read through the scripture, we find that really, in a sense, the whole Bible is about him. It's, it's the theme of the scripture. We know even in the Old Testament, though he isn't known as Jesus, though he isn't incarnate, he still is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And as we read through Genesis chapter 1, we know that he is the word, he is the creator. John, in the call to worship that I read this morning, speaks to us about Jesus as the word, thus the creator. And we know that in Genesis 1, even in opening the Bible, though we don't know it then, but God creates by speaking. The very word of God creates. And that word of God is this eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the creator of all that is. As we read through the Old Testament, we come to chapter 3, and a promise is made that one is going to come from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And we know that very one who's going to come from the seed of the woman is Jesus, the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 12, there's a man named Abram whose name is changed to Abraham. And great promises are made to this one we come to know as Abraham. And one of the promises is, is this, that through him, through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we know that that one who's promised then is Jesus. But we realize that there's a a word spoken through and to Moses. And God says concerning Moses that he's going to raise up another prophet like him. And that he must be listened to. And if you don't listen to him, then you'll be cursed. And we know this very one who's going to be raised up like Moses as as a deliverer from 
of, of God's people from slavery, from bondage, this very prophet who will speak the truth of God, be the very truth of God, is indeed Jesus. We see Jesus in everything in the Old Covenant. We see him in the tabernacle, in the temple, the very presence of God with his people. We see him in the priests as, as, as people are represented before God because we know Jesus to be our high priest. The priests in the Old Testament would represent the people before God because they, they were from the people and they understood the weakness of the people. And, and thus Jesus comes and he represents us as well before God. We see him In King David, the promise being made that there's one who will sit on the throne of David forever, meaning there's one who will come and be the king, be the one who will will rule righteously on the earth. And we know that one to be Jesus. He's spoken of by the prophets. Uh, The prophet Isaiah says of this one who is to come, that this child is going to be born, a son is to be given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's Jesus. Isaiah speaks of Jesus who is to come as calling him this suffering servant who will take our iniquities upon him, that he will be chastised for our peace. That by his wounds we'll find healing for our souls and ultimately our whole beings. This one who is to come. Jeremiah speaks of him as the guarantor of this new covenant. This covenant that's going to come wherein people will have written upon their minds and their hearts the law of God. That is that they'll know God. They'll be forgiven their sins. This is all about the coming one, this Jesus. And thus when we come to the Gospels, we we see this old man, Simeon, at the temple. And he sees the baby Jesus being brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph. And he says, ah, my eyes have seen the consolation or the comfort, the salvation of Israel. He's here, this, this, this one of whom... We've been hearing all these generation after generation after generation. He's here, this Jesus. And and in fact, we read of Jesus in the Gospels. His name, he will save his people from their sin. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the very one who has indeed been prophet. He comes, been prophesied. He comes to show forth the truth of God, to reveal God to us. He, as we read in our... A call to worship from John in chapter 1. These profound, profound words. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is that very one. So we see in Jesus the very character of God. His compassion, his mercy, his justice. We see the very power of God even as he heals those who are sick. Even as he raises the dead we see that he does only what God can do, which is to forgive sins. We see this very one, Jesus. In fact, in him comes the kingdom of God, this government of which Isaiah spoke, this rule and reign, and it's a rule and reign of righteousness. It's a rule and reign of mercy and grace. It is if you are under his rule, then for you he has conquered sin and death. And you live, therefore, in the very presence of God with life and life eternal. All of the scriptures we come to find is about Jesus. So that when the apostle says that he is to be preeminent, he is to have the first place. It means he is to have the first place in history. 
He's to have the first place in church. He's to have the first place in our lives. And so Paul is writing to this church in Colossae and saying, don't get Jesus out of your mind. He's to influence everything that is true. Because he's the very one who's who's unlike any other. He's come to say that he's the bread of life. That is, you can't survive without him. He's the light of the world. You can't see anything without him. In fact, to see anything clearly means you must see it in his light. You must see it through him. He's the good shepherd if you want to be cared for and nurtured. He's the door. He's the only way into life with God. He's the resurrection and the life. There is no resurrection from the dead apart from him into life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way, there's no other truth. There's no other life other than by him, through him. He is the true vine. If you're not attached to him, you will shrivel up and die. He's preeminent. Everything in all of history, everything in all of life, revolves around him. In fact, the confession that will be on everyone's lips on the last day is, Jesus is Lord. Everyone will see it. Everyone will recognize it. The one thing that everybody will know at that point in time, all of history will be summed up in that moment. They'll say, Jesus is Lord. Now, some will be saying Jesus is Lord as they're being condemned by this one who is Lord, the righteous judge. Others will say Jesus is Lord as they're accepted into glory to live on the new earth for all of eternity. Jesus is Lord over sin and death, those who believe. But all will know that will be the echoing sound on that last day. Everyone will then see it. Paul said, don't wait till then. Realize that now he is preeminent. He's first. He is overall. Now the church in Colossae was interesting. Interesting for a number of reasons. One is interesting just from you know from a biblical perspective in that Paul didn't found this church. And in chapter two, in verse one, he writes this. He says, "For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face." We always get the impression that Paul has this intimate, personal relationship with these people to whom he writes, but he hadn't seen this group of people. He didn't found this church. Someone else did. Probably Epaphras in verse seven that I read of chapter one. Uh, Paul writes, "Just as you learned it from Epaphras." Uh, Epaphras was, was one of them. Uh, later on in, in, in chapter 4, he speaks again of Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. So he was one of them in the sense that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. But it's likely he was one of them too because he may have come from Colossae. He may have been one of their own. And so it's likely that when Paul was in Ephesus... Read about this in Acts chapter 19. Stayed a couple of years in Ephesus. It's likely that Epaphras came to faith there, and it's likely then that he went to Colossae, which was about 100 miles away, and, and took to them the gospel and, and was the one that God used to found that church there. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. In chapter 4, in verse 3, he writes, At the same time, pray also for us 
that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So this is one of what we call Paul's prison epistles. He he wrote Ephesians and Philippians, Colossians, and the little book Philemon while he was clearly in prison. Uh, Which prison stay this was, we don't know exactly. It's likely that it was in Rome. Uh, where sort of towards the end of Paul's life, which means the church in Colossae was probably founded in the mid-50s, not the 1950s, but the mid-50s. And this letter was written in the early 60s, probably 60, 61, 62, something like that. So you just get a bit of a, a time frame and all of that. But it's Paul who's doing the writing. And it's important for us to kick back every once in a while to think about that. This man, Paul... Notice how he puts it. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, this is verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is with him. Uh, Maybe that that, that Paul's dictating this letter to Timothy, and Timothy's writing it down, we don't know. But, But he's with Timothy, his son in the faith, as he refers to him in other places. But Paul refers himself as an apostle, significant word. Generically, it just means someone who's sent... But in this case, Paul is identifying himself, as he always did, with the original ones called directly by Jesus. If you think about it, the original 12, and then we lose Judas for obvious reasons, pick up a guy named Matthias later, but at least those first 12 were called directly by Jesus. We get that sense in the gospel. He's walking around and he's called these ones. He says, come and follow me. He calls them directly. Well, he called Paul directly as well. Paul refers to himself as an apostle, as one who was untimely born as an apostle, or untimely called, that is, sort of after the fact. It wasn't with the original group of guys, but you remember the story of Paul's conversion, of Paul being called. He was, he was a persecutor of the church. He was a murderer of Christians. He, would, he was a, a, an abuser, really, of his power and authority that was given to him by the Jewish authorities. And he was on his way on this road to Damascus, you remember, and, uh, and Jesus arrested him on the road to Damascus, spoke to him and, and startled him. He went blind, you remember, and, and his sight was later given a couple of days later back to him. And he was called by Jesus then to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to go out and to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he said he was called in all of this, as apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. It wasn't his idea. It wasn't the idea even of the other apostles. In fact, he makes very clear in Galatians chapter 1 that that he didn't immediately go to the other apostles and seek their endorsement. In fact, he went off for a few years and received revelation of all this that is true. Later, he would meet with the apostles on various occasions and have confirmed all that he knew and all that he believed about Jesus. But, 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 But he was called by the will of God. And that should sort of take our breath away a minute. We say, wow, what a claim to make. We should listen to this very one whose life was clearly transformed by what he had seen before he was a murderer and an aggressor against the faith. Then something happened this moment where he met Jesus and everything changed to where he was willing to not kill for Jesus' sake, but to be killed for Jesus' sake. Not to persecute for Jesus' sake, but to be 
not to persecute those who were following Jesus, but to be persecuted himself for Jesus' sake, to be poured out, as he said, in his own life as a drink offering on the altar of God for the sake of Christ. Something changed in all of this. Paul saw himself really writing really uh, in the same tradition as the Old Testament prophets, same tradition as Moses who said this, these words are not idle words, they're your life. The same tradition that Jesus would affirm when he said that I haven't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. That nothing in the Old Testament will be changed at all because it's the very word of God. And when he was questioned, Jesus, and in debate with people, he would allude back often to the Old Testament and say, this is the truth, this is the word of God. When, when they asked him about marriage, he quoted Genesis chapter 1, that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the two would become flesh. He spoke often, you've heard it said, but here's what I say, here's how you're to understand all that is in the Old Covenant. This Jesus affirmed that which is true. And Paul writes in that same tradition so much so that he knows that what he's writing is, is the very word of God. In fact, when he speaks to the church in Thessalonica. He says to them, uh, concerning their response to him, he says that you did not receive this word as the words of men, but as the word of God, which it is. So as Paul writes to us, he's saying, I know the truth. I know the very will of God. I know the truth of God. And I'm going to lay that out for you to write it to you. So Paul, this apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, is writing to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. And when he says saints, he's not meaning a special group of Christians. That's just the name he used for believers. When he says the saints and faithful brothers, that's, that's not two different groups of people. It's one group. Saint meaning you're the ones who have been set apart by God. That's what the word saint means, to be set apart by God, to be his, to be consecrated. That you may live a holy life to be set apart by God. We're all to be saints. That's the name that's given to us. And we're to be faithful as they were faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. Now what Paul has for them, what Paul desires for them, the, the very gist of what he desires is found in his prayer in verse 9. He prays for them. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what Paul hopes for them is that they know the very will of God. That's his desire for them, that they be filled with the knowledge of his will. And there's a purpose for this. It isn't just so that they can pass a multiple choice test on the will of God and be smarter than everybody else and walk around and win debates in the corner. But the purpose for this knowledge is that they would be able to walk then in a manner worthy of the Lord. So I want you to know the will of God so that you can live it, so that you can walk it out, so you can live it out. And the result of this is that they would be bearing fruit then in every good work. So they, to know the will of God, to live it out, and to see then fruit come from that, which you look at and you say, that's the fruit of God. That's the fruit of God. That's what I see out of Him. Yesterday I had the privilege of doing a wedding for Mark and Chantel. 
Mark Grandke, uh, got married and, and uh, I often preach from a passage in Colossians, chapter 3, which speaks to us of, of, of putting on compassion and putting on gentleness and putting on, 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 on kindness and putting on goodness and patience and forgiveness and all of that. And at the end of that, I always say, if you see those things in your life, that's the fruit of Christ in you. That should encourage us. That's the fruit of Christ. And so that's what Paul wants, you see. He wants them to know the will of God so that they live it out. And in living it out, what they'll see is fruit. They'll see stuff in the context of their own lives, their thoughts and their actions and the words that come out of their mouth and go, wow, that's the fruit of Christ in me. I see Jesus in all of that. And then the end of all of that is and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so it comes full circle. I want you to know the will of God, be filled with the will of God, so that you can walk in a manner worthy, pleasing Him, bearing fruit, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Why does He add that last part? Well, because as you're increasing in the knowledge of God, what happens? You keep walking. And as you keep walking, what happens? You keep living in a manner worthy of the Lord. And when you do that, what happens? Well, you keep bearing fruit. And when you bear fruit, what happens? Well, well, you get to know God better. So it's this whole life, He says. I want you to be focused upon Christ, that he is, in fact, preeminent. And so what we'll see as we take the next, I don't know how long, there's, there's another uh, guessing game going on about how long it's going to take me to get finished with Colossians. Just a hint, I would go longer than shorter. Uh, it's only four chapters, but but... It's unbelievably packed tight. I once read in a preface to an economics textbook that short writing often makes for long reading. It was a very short book, and it's all that I had my students read that whole semester, and they were pulling their hair out. It was very packed, very, very uh, tight, packed words and concepts. And that's what Colossians is. It's sort of like Paul's been writing all these others, and I said, let me just send this off to you. And so every sentence is like, oof, months. Um, <laughs> But what we'll see as we walk our way through Colossians is that Paul prays this, that they have, they're filled with the knowledge of God, and then he fills them with the knowledge of God through his epistle, through this letter. So that we get to chapter 3, we're at the walking with God and bearing fruit part. So if you look just chapter 3, just to kind of wet your whistle, verse 1 says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Okay, if all this is true, if Christ is preeminent, if he's worked in your life, if, if he's first in all things, in the context of your life, then what that will translate into in your walk and your fruit is that you'll begin seeking things which are consistent with him. Therefore, in your life, in verse 5, you'll put to death everything that's, 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 that's not of Christ. And then in verse 9, uh, in, verse, um, in verse 12, you'll put on all those things which are consistent with Christ. And so he'll get to that point, and he said, if Christ is preeminent, then it'll affect everything. It'll affect your marriage, verse 18 and 19, about husbands and wives. It'll affect your interactions at work here in this context, it's slaves and masters. And then it'll affect even your life with those who are 
outside the faith. Verse 5 of chapter 4, conduct yourself wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of time. See, what I mean when I say that Christ is preeminent, I mean that he's supreme. I mean that he's first in all things. Like I said at the offering time, it isn't just that you have a list, you know, God first, family second, work third, me fourth. I understand those lists, and they're helpful because it's a reminder that that God is supreme, but he needs to be first and supreme in every line item. He's first in my family, supreme in my family. He, he defines how I'm to be as a husband and a father. He's, he's first in my work, which means he defines how I'm to work. He's first in my relationships with people because, because he defines those relationships for me. He's first in my thoughts because he defines and gives me thoughts. He tells me how I'm to think. He tells me how I'm to feel about all things. He's first in my emotions. He's first in my passions. He's first in my loves, which means he defines for me what I'm to love. He's first in that which I hate. He defines that which is right to hate, if you will. He defines all of that. That's what it means when Paul says that he's to be preeminent in all things. And so we get to chapter 3 and he says, well, if he's preeminent, if he's first, if he's supreme, then this is how your life will look. You'll arrange everything in your life around him. You'll take out all those things that are inconsistent with him. You'll put in all those things which are consistent with him and it'll govern every relationship in your life. Chapter 2, he deals with the issues and the problems that exist. And in chapter 1, he lays out the knowledge of the will of God. And the knowledge of the will of God is Christ. I want you to know Him. And he lays out for us what we used as our profession of faith this morning. We'll probably use it a ton in the next few months as our profession of faith. We'll read it together because it's, it's what, 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 what those who study these letters call an early Christian hymn. There's something about this that, that's poetic. There's something about this that, that you get the sense that they would, they would memorize this concerning Jesus. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God around whom should you Center your life. Don't center your life around me. Don't center it around your kids. Don't center it around your spouse. Don't center it around your job. Don't center it about your favorite team. Don't center it about... Center it about this one who is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that Jesus was a created being. Firstborn in the Bible means the one who has preeminence. In the Old Covenant, the firstborn got all the inheritance, owned everything after dad died. Firstborn of our creation means that he's the one who is over all of the creation. And we know why. For, because by him all things were created. So everything belongs to him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. He's picking the biggest and the best of everything and saying, whether you can see it or whether you can't, whether it's in heaven or whether it's earth, whether it's a king or not, he is over that. All things were created through him and for him. All will be centered around him. And he is before all things eternal. In him all things hold together. He's the, we could say this reverently, the glue that holds everything together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, which means he's conquered death for all who come after him and believe in him. That in everything he might be 
preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of his cross. It all begins here. It all begins for us as we understand him through what he did that day on that cross. He announced it many times. Indeed, it was announced even in the Old Testament that this very one would come and he would die. But he announced it to his disciples on various occasions and it seems as if they couldn't quite grasp it. How could they grasp that one would to die for their sins and rise again? They had some images from the Old Testament of, of lambs dying for he indeed was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. They understood something of Passover, of, of another dying in your place, but this one who would die and rise again, how could they really think of that? But he gained preeminence even by way of the cross, he met with his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup that was there at that table that night. And he said to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, he has preeminence in our life. Without him, we are lost. Without him, we perish. Without him, we have no real life. We need him. If he isn't, we're not. We need him. The scripture, as Paul lays it out for us, he speaks of his preeminence in our lives. He writes that he has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints in light, for he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's it. There's no redemption, no forgiveness of sins apart from him. Through him, through Jesus, he reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace through the blood of the cross. There's no peace with God without him. Chapter 1, verse 27, great verse To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's no hope of glory. There's no hope of eternal life without Christ. He's that central. Let me ask you to bow to pray. And and, and as you do I want you just to take a moment even as I take this moment and ask this question what what is supreme in my life what is supreme in your life what has preeminence 
What's first? What informs everything else? What defines your life? What defines my life? What defines your interests, your passions, your views? The way you use your time? The way you allocate your money? What defines what you read, what you look at on the internet? What defines how you treat those around you? Your wife, husband, children, parents, friends, those who don't know Christ. What's supreme in your life? What directs you? What do you follow as the wisdom for your life? Your own ideas, uh, the ideals of the world around you, our culture. It's what defines you, what is supreme, what's preeminent. Is it your passion to know Christ? To walk according to his ways. To bear fruit that resembles him. Take this moment just of quiet. Confess before God what is preeminent in your life. All those things that exist there. That exist apart from Christ. That not the fruit of Christ. Not the ways of Christ. Not the knowledge of Christ. Father in heaven, we made our confessions before you. We thank you that though you are God, still we can be honest with you. A, you know everything anyway. But B, we know that as we come to you in Jesus, that you're gracious and that you're, that you're forgiven, forgiving. Father, we do confess that we can easily forget that Jesus is preeminent. We can take what he's done for granted. We can think that we can handle life from here on out or think that since he's done so much for us that now we must do this for him or we think that he's covered what happens after we die but we need to be practical here on earth so that we live by the wisdom of the world and not his wisdom. Forgive us. Father, we know that Christ has come so that we might be forgiven our pride of thinking we know best. And though now we rest in his work, give us strength to follow you, Jesus. Cause us to fear you, to walk in your ways, to bear fruit that shows that you are in us, that we may increase in our knowledge of God. Now, Father, I pray. That you would set aside this bread and juice in such a way that enables us to meet with Jesus here and now. That is, in meeting with him we may know that we're forgiven our sins, that he's with us. That all of life is to center upon him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. But it's the table of the Lord and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. Meaning that you need, you know that you need him. 
Would you believe and depend upon him as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners? And that you desire to live a life that is consistent with being a follower of Christ, meaning that you desire to know him, you desire to walk in his ways, that you desire to bear fruit. And you say, well, I've just confessed, I haven't done that. It's good that you confess that. And now from this moment on, as you come to this table, place before God, ask him to give you strength that you may be that very one who walks with him and bears fruit. This one who knows that he is preeminent. That's true for you. Let me ask these two sections to come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you do and you eat it, let go off in your head. Christ is first in all things. He is preeminent. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven. Um, Christ is indeed preeminent. We know of all of history will be summed in him. We know that a day will come when all will pronounce that Jesus is Lord. We pray, God, that we would live that out even now. That in every, act, every, every part of our life, every action that we take, every thought that we think, every desire that we have, will be submitted to Christ. And that he would direct our lives. And that we would live to his glory. Father, please, I pray, keep him central upon our minds and hearts. Keep us thoughtful of him at all times. Father, he is a great comfort to us who know him. And so I pray that that very comfort would be on the white family in these days. Darren and Shannon, Father, and little Noel. Father, that you would be very close to them in these days. That you would grant them great assurance that you as the wise and loving and kind Father have treated Caden well and have blessed him. So, Father, I pray that you would be with them, be with Ed and Peggy as well, Father, as they minister to their kids and, and granddaughter. And, Father, that you would bless them with great strength and faith that their walk would be a blessing to all around them and that their knowledge of you would be a deep and abiding comfort. Father, we pray for uh, our week this week with Family Promise Ministries. Father, as, as folks come to spend the week with us here in our facility as well as to, to, to fellowship with us in various ways. And so, Father, I pray for all who come that you would be gracious to them that they would feel welcome and feel your hand upon them even as they stay here, that you would uh, direct them to yourself, call them to yourself, that they would depend not upon us but upon you. And Father, for all of us who are involved this week, that you would grant the spirit and gift of hospitality and kindness. And Father, that we may show forth Christ well to them. And bless them in their needs. Many those who are here have deep needs. And so we pray, Father, that you would meet every need. That they have materially, socially, relationally, emotionally, spiritually. Father, for all of us, we pray in this life that you have called us to. That we would know your will. 
who is Jesus, that we would walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, to you, Lord, and that we would bear fruit in every good work, and that we'd increase in our knowledge of God. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that our Sunday school classes are beginning at 9.45, so please attend. Uh, The response to our benediction is for us to sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace be brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him.